Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today in the Crawl Space Studios with Lance. What's up, Lance? How's it going today, Tim? It's going great. We are uh, very close to CrimeCon. Yeah, we are anxiety-filled about this CrimeCon. Not not bad anxiety. I'd say anticipation and some, some positive energy going on. Right. If you're at CrimeCon, please come and see us. We're going to be on pat- Podcast Row. We're also going to be doing a screening on Friday night. We have a live Missing Maura Murray on Friday and a live Crawl Space on Saturday. So check the schedules, please. I just want to talk about this screening, which is going to be a unique experience for people. Everyone's asking about the documentary and where it's at and this is a cut of the documentary that you won't see anywhere else literally will not ever be seen ever again it, it in the form that you see it you will never see that again this is a crime con exclusive exclusive screening um it features our introduction into the world of the obsession with the disappearance of Mormory, uh and just naturally that that introduction is made by James Renner and we go to Canada and that is where it all starts. Right. And so after the screening this Friday night at CrimeCon in Nashville, we're going to have a little Q&A. Maggie Freeling from The Oxygen Show is going to be there as well. And there is some new information that we uh, we have been um, supplied uh, for this CrimeCon. So that's going to be pr- pretty cool. So uh, please be there at the live um, podcast if you can and, uh, and at the Q&A and screening. And the date is Friday, May 4th, and this was just by happenstance that it's Moore's birthday. So we got the schedule uh, and Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we realized Moore's birthday is on Friday. Let's do this on Friday. So yeah, It would be Moore's 35th birthday. So you'll see this special screening. You'll be a part of a Q&A, and we have some material that, that we get to uh, re- reveal, I guess, right? Yep. And so in this episode coming up right now, Lance, we talk about local dirtbags, and we have the help of our friend Chloe. 
Uh, so, so she joins us, and she helped us with uh, with some of the information in this episode, as did Maggie Freeling, who joins us for a brief uh, phone call, and uh, Aaron Larkin also helped uh, with some of this information. And what you're listening to is us doing a sort of broad stroke on the local dirtbag uh, aspect, the local dirtbag element. We hear that term that's been floated out there all the time, and it's time. We felt it was time to address this local dirtbag element, and. There was a lot of stuff that you'll hear, but there was a lot of material that we didn't talk about for various reasons. You and I have had the conversation about whether whether or not this is a good thing. And ultimately, we came to the conclusion that it had to be done. Yeah, I think so. And because we're reading all uh, do- like documented um, facts, right? So all of the- everything that we talk about comes from somewhere. It's not just pulled from the sky. Um, and if there's if there's a local rumor that we're addressing, we will uh, uh, mention that it's a rumor. What always brings me back and and hones me in on whether or not we should do an episode like this and where my decision making happens is we can't control whether or not someone has committed a crime and been convicted of something as heinous as some of these crimes are and the fact that you live in that area it's out there we're going to talk about it you know why because more is still missing and and the dogs lost her scent at a certain area and she's still missing and then when you look left and right and all around you you have all sorts of these houses viewpoints it's a spiders cars driving by yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So, uh, so let us know what you think on Twitter. Uh, find us at Mora Murray Doc. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. And find us at CrimeCon. Come say hi. We're going to be on Podcast Row. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I am Tim here in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown, joined by Lance. What's up, Lance? How's it going? How's everything? Uh, how's everything with you today? Everything with me is is great. Actually, it's it's been a wild day so far. Uh, Chloe's here as well. What's up, Chloe? Not much. It's definitely been a wild day as far as you know the news goes. Right, and so we're recording this on Wednesday, April 25th, but you're not hearing it on that day. Uh, today is the day that uh, the news announcement that the Golden State Killer had been caught. So a very big day for true crime and for cold cases. It's exciting. But here on this episode, we are talking about the area, the local area, and specifically local dirtbags. Right. This is something that we have always referenced since the beginning-ish, that that area that Mora disappeared, there's many comments about what are the odds of some local or some transient bad person who is capable and, and sees the opportunity to take this young woman. Because by all accounts, it does appear like she got into a car. Her scent disappears abruptly. I keep imagining a drain and that little screen that catches the crap in your sink after you do the dishes, and it, it drains down to this little vortex. And that area, that, that I'll say, five-mile area, because you do have to push out a little bit, but you don't have to try very hard to push out a little bit to get a sighting of Mora next to another one of the dirt bags. That's sort of the vortex of the drain. And what we what we have there is probably the worst place in that 
particular region that she could have disappeared. So we reference these people all the time, and we feel like now is a good time to talk about them. We just want to kind of geographically point out where these people are and some of their offenses or alleged offenses. Or sometimes documented offenses. Absolutely. So we got to start with Rick, I guess, right? He's right across the street, basically right where Mora's scent went missing was the house he was building and the trailer that he currently lived in. If you don't mind me backing you up a little bit, please, I'd like to hone in and then build out a little bit closer. I want to start with the Westmans. Okay. Very least, they're guilty of apathy. And I just want to say that right off the bat. I suppose. I'm not sure I blame them for not coming out, though, when uh, when you hear the rest of uh, this episode. Sure. I mean, but to, to, to rope off an area of the Weathered Barns parking lot so that people can't have a safe place to park during a once-a-year anniversary at the tree is sort of uh, apathy on top of isolationism. So Insult on top of apathy, maybe? Insult on top of apathy with a sprinkle of isolationism. Yeah, that, that I cannot uh, so at combat. The, at the very least, so that's our first step. Yeah. Nothing legally bad, nothing legally, you know, convictable, but... They could have done more. They could have done more. And they have a right to do what they want with their property, and obviously the public's not entitled to it, but... When we try to put ourselves in their shoes and think about what we would do in that position if once a year people wanted to remember a missing woman that's probably a victim of a crime, you'd think that you would allow people to park in a safe place like that. A crime that took place right outside your window. That that they witnessed part of. Yeah. I think you'd have some understanding and you'd say, I'm not going to be so much of a curmudgeon on February 9th. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pull in the reins a little bit on that, and I will allow people to park in a parking lot that is not being used at the time. Neighbor Rick, Rick, who lived right there on the corner of Bradley Hill Road and Route 112, right across the street from Butch Atwood, Rick Forcier was building his new house. And this is, of course, 14 years ago. He was living in a trailer at the time while he was building this house that now exists there. We've often talked about how it could be possible that this guy apprehends her. But we know that there is some information about him. We know that there was at least one grand jury held, and we know that he was part of... Was a subject of some discussion at the grand jury? At least that. And you're talking about Rick Force here? Yes. Okay. Let's look at a timeline of events here and look at where he says he was when Mora went missing. There was a pretty publicized news story a couple months after Mora went missing that a new witness came forward and saw a young person wearing a black jacket with a light hood moving quickly on foot near the intersection of Route 112 and 116, which was five miles down the road, approximately, I think it was 30 minutes to an hour after she was last seen, and they took this account pretty seriously at first. But then there were some questions about why did it take so long for him to figure it out, and people became suspicious. That person turned out to be Rick Forcier. And what's interesting is that we've heard conflicting accounts about what he was doing around that time. So in this account, he was driving home from work. We've also heard that he was sleeping on the couch in his trailer, that he's said that on a different occasion. So when you hear... Uh, conflicting stories, you wonder if someone's lying, right? Absolutely. And that's that's why we're talking about it. Also, the account of him seeing 
a, a person running didn't come out until several months later. Yeah. So he had a different account before that, and then all of a sudden, suddenly remembered this sighting in, while he was in a store, and he made a joke in the store saying that Moore is a good cook. And his excuse was that he confused the days. So when people asked him, or probably law enforcement asked him, why are you just remembering this now? He said that he mixed up the nights and he was going through his old records and realized that this was the night that he saw this young person. But it's interesting because after he made this statement, there was a formal search in that area where he said that he had last seen her, which moved some focus away from his backyard. Okay, so the reason why we're focusing on Rick Force here, for those who don't know, um, with his you know his past, if this had just if this had been anybody anybody else that didn't have a, a sort of sketchy past, then it would be taken as a sighting. Um, so the sighting of this person that he saw um, up by Hummingbird Lane, and we have to put a we have to put a little dog ear in that, and we'll come back to that later because that spreads our perimeter out a, a little further. If it had not been Rick Forcier, they would have looked into the sighting and they probably would have discounted it or confirmed it, whether it was Mora or somebody else. But the fact that he is who he is and what we know about him causes you to suspect everything that you hear has come out of his mouth. We've made several attempts, attempts to reach him. We've emailed what we believe is his current email address. We even left our card with our number at a coffee shop in Franconia. Which we know he frequented. Right. And we haven't heard back. And we do have uh, an account from Maggie and Art when they were shooting the disappearance of Maura Murray for Oxygen, an encounter that they had with, with Rick that didn't go as you would expect it to go if you're if you have nothing to hide. Yes. And, you know, when we're reporting this information, like you can't help but feel like he has I mean, he definitely has a right to speak to the things that are being said about him, some of which are being said by us. He has a right to say his side, but and we and we definitely like him to, but he hasn't given us that chance. So why are we looking into him and saying that this is a person who we just can't dismiss? Well, what we know about him here, let's first start with a criminal record. The only thing I have here on the criminal record is a booking date of November 13th, 2009. The charge or offense is taking possession of game or wildlife, and he pled guilty to it. And that crime took place in Pennsylvania. So taking possession of game or wildlife. Yeah, well, we knew he was a taxidermist, right? So we would love to start as innocent as possible there. Um, Maybe that's what he took or possessed. I mean, maybe he's a hunter. I mean, I don't think that's probably a very uncommon thing. Right. You know, charge if you uh, spend a lot of time hunting or doing taxidermy. You know, he's probably done that other times and not gotten caught. Um, you know, and I don't want to speculate too much on that, but uh, it doesn't seem like a major offense. No, and I guess what we're uh, assuming is that this game or wildlife is uh, dead. Uh, the The offense is taking slash possession of game or wildlife. He might have had chickens that weren't sanctioned by the town. You know, right. he might have had, it might be class, or a goat. You know, like <laughs> you hear stories about someone who owned a goat as a pet and then they couldn't because it wasn't. None of you guys have heard stories about a goat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. my, my friend owned a goat. <laughs> okay. I'm looking at the specific statutes of the law um, right now. 
the general rule is that it's unlawful for any person to aid, abet, attempt, or conspire to hunt for or take or possess, use, transport, or conceal any game or wildlife unlawfully. And that can include hunting before or after lawful hunting hours. So he could have just been breaking the hunting laws about uh, what time he was, when. Mm. Out right. of season, maybe? Yeah, it's possible that he was hunting out of season. And um, another example of breaking this law are wild birds and wild animals taken outside of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It is unlawful to transport or possess wild birds or wild animals from another state or nation which have been unlawfully taken, killed, or exported. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think that this is necessarily correlated with... Yeah, anything any, much. A, anything much. Anything too suspicious yeah. or whatever. You can read into it, but it's probably not best to... So that's what we know of his criminal past. Uh, We've heard some rumblings about some harassment currently going on up there, but we can't really speak to it. Um, Chloe, what have you learned from talking or emailing with his ex-wife? So last year, his ex-wife actually opened herself up and gave me the opportunity to ask her a few questions over email. And she shed some interesting insight about Rick and his behavior interesting piece of information. I asked her, how did you learn that Maura Murray went missing? And she said that she thought it was Wednesday um, that she saw a news story regarding the disappearance and that she recognized the area to be right where Rick was living. So she gave him a call and he had joked that she came to his door. Funny joke. Hilarious. Yeah. This is from his ex-wife. Yes. That's okay. the day after Mora went missing? Wednesday, so two days. Two days. Yeah. Okay, Okay. but wow. being devil's advocate, we joke about things, sort of keeps us sane. We do, so but... So nothing... nothing... I, I mean, it kind of makes his account a little bit more dubious. We have someone that's calling him two days after, and he's aware of the case, and then three months, three weeks or three months after, he's saying a different story now about how he did see her. He had opportunity to consider this. His wife's calling him saying this woman went missing. There was police activity. He obviously was able to see the police activity 100 yards down the road. And he didn't look back and reflect, did I see something weird that night? Then he only thought about it months later. Right. So three separate accounts, basically. Yeah. So one where he was on his couch, one where Mora came to his door, and one where he saw someone running about six miles east. On his way home from work, and one of so those accounts what's is the a, truth. One I mean, of those accounts is the joke, right? It could be. I could don't be. know. I don't know. Or yeah. if he delivered it in a sarcastic way, maybe he was telling the truth, and everyone was like, "Oh, it must be a joke." It just it just shows that he like knew something about it already. At least, yeah, it's right. it's hard to interpret a joke because it does sound like he had a bit of a dark sense of humor, and like I'm sure that he would. If he were here with us, he would use that as his defense. I'm sure. You know, I, I'm, I'm just joking. Right. And this is a, an artistic guy. He's, uh, he's a musician, actually. Here's a cut of one of his songs right now. Such a stronger man. Solo and alive.
pretty catchy song, Days That's That so End in Y. It's got a hook and you I can like dance it. to it. Yeah, I like it. I was thinking we should do a karaoke version of it, but... <laughs> I think that should definitely catch on. Yeah. Um, but here's another one that you can find on YouTube. Okay, a, a little creepier. The Stalker song. Yeah, that one's called The Stalker song. He goes a little to the dark side there, but he does it with a what I think is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek effort. I think so. Yeah, it so, seems a little goofy and a little innocent. Like You don't see any like, sordid references there, but right. subject's interesting. Right, so that's where he's at, right? Maybe he's kind of a darkly comic guy, for all we know, like looking at it very innocently. But what what else did... Rebecca tell you about him joking quote unquote I don't know if it's a joke about some lake she had mentioned and I think it was Lake Massabesic she had said that he brought me to a pull-off spot on the side of Lake Massabesic to point out where a woman's body had been thrown in and weighed down by concrete blocks have you ever heard of anyone being found there and that's directly from Rebecca yes but that account happened before Mora went missing, right? Yes. Okay. And a, a lot of what we had talked about was um, it's, it's important to determine whether she was suspicious at the time or if she's looking back with a suspicious eye based on things that she's been told after. And she was telling me about how she's struggled with that and she wonders if she's looking at it for, in a biased way. And she says that she really doesn't think so just because there were things along the way that made her suspicious of him because of the way that he was behaving. And this is before Mora went missing and it was because of other, I don't really want to go too in specific, but allegations, other, other allegations that had come forth that made her question his character. Other allegations that had come forth from her. Yes. She said that there were certain things that, that became apparent to her in his behavior. Okay. Also, though, the police were coming to see her. Like, they were coming to her work. They were talking to her. They talked to her several Ex times. That was exactly my question. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So she said that the state police would come and speak with her frequently, and they had actually told her that he was a prime suspect. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know if they were telling her that in hopes of invoking more information out of her. You know, the police have every right to lie when they're, sure. when they're questioning people, if it th they think it would be fruitful. Gauge a reaction. Gauge a reaction, exactly. So, but what we know is that the trailer he sold was searched immediately after it left his property. It was like they were sitting on it. As they soon were as it was on wheels. Right. And same thing with the house. As soon as he sold the plot of land in the house, uh, tell us what um, what the new owner said. Yeah. Um, so the people that purchased the house right after Rick sold it, still live there. And I spoke with them briefly and they had told me that pretty much as soon as they purchased the house, the police asked them for permission to search because Rick would not give them permission when he was living there. And 
I guess they didn't have enough to get a search warrant and search the place without his permission. But the new homeowners gladly gave the police permission. They searched. And I recall the new homeowner mentioning that the police said they didn't have any particular reason to be searching, but they wanted to sort of check it off their list. I don't know, again, if they were just saying that to protect their investigation or what. Like we said, like, it's like how people say, oh, when I called in this tip to police, they didn't seem interested at all. That doesn't tell us anything. The right. way that they act, their attitude, it really doesn't tell us anything. Yeah, the police, if you call in a tip, the police aren't going to be like, awesome. Yes, thank you. Thank you cracked you. the case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we think you might have done it. But he, uh, he they, they waited until he left. They searched his trailer um, after he left. And I just want to be clear that the police interest in Rick is primarily due to the proximity and their communications with Faith and Butch, two other houses that are within the proximity of Mora disappearing. So the other one is Rick Forcier. So his behavior upon being questioned is what sparked further investigation into him. Right. He starts with proximity Mm -hmm. and his behavior contributes to him being a suspect. His proximity, the scent being lost right between his house and Butch Atwood's house, um, his lack of cooperation from um, with law enforcement and with volunteer searchers. I think there was an account early on from the McDonald's. Christine McDonald said that when she had tried to interview him, he gave her the creeps like she had. She just felt very creeped out by him and he refused to help and let them search and there's some conjecture oh maybe he had pot or maybe he just had other reasons to not want people to search but just the fact that he was evasive and completely non-cooperative I think heightened law enforcement's interest and then he comes again with the with having a different story the allegations are highly suspicious yeah and, and that gives us more insight on his character and what he might be capable of and yeah also just to, to some perspective here this was a guy who owned property uh in the white mountains and and was building his own house and that house exists now but yet rick doesn't live there now rick by all accounts lives in a van he has like a tool shed where he parks his van near but he sleeps in the van so just for some perspective this was a guy who was married with a couple of kids uh theoretically living a happy life building a house and then you know, we go 14, 15, 16 years later and he's living out of a van. Seemingly by choice. Like yeah, transient he, by choice. Yeah. He makes beds in all of the vans. Right, so, it's so that's a not home. a new... Uh, no, that's, right. that's something that he had done before, even before he got married. But by the time Maura went missing, he was separated from um, from his wife. We're, we're not intentionally trying to paint a dubious picture, but like ourselves, but we're just sort of given the the paintbrushes based on the information that we have. We're not making it up. Right. And we're not making up the fact that Maura went missing right there. And we're not making up the fact that Rick's the way he is. Okay, and here is Maggie Freeling's account of meeting Rick Forcier while she was with Art Roderick for the filming of Oxygen's The Disappearance of Maura Murray. We were like staking out his place. We knew where he lived, but he has like no known schedule. Um, so Art and I are in the car in front of his lot and about three hours later, he, um, showed up and instantly made eye contact with us. And, you know, we didn't really know 
if he knew who we were. Um, but we had given a phone call a couple times. One of the producers tried calling him a few times. Um, so we roll up, like he's getting out of his car. And then as soon as he sees us pulling up to his driveway, he immediately reverses, almost hits us and comes flying out of the driveway down the street. And I was driving and art was just follow him. And I was like, Holy shit. So I floor it to follow Rick Forcier and his like 50 year old van flying down the street. And we get into a high speed chase on the highway. What highway is that right there? Was it 91? 93. 93. Yeah. So we're in like a high speed chase on 93 and we get off at the Littleton exit. And I mean, it was wild. We were going maybe like 90 on the highway trying to follow him. And my biggest question the whole time is he doesn't even know who we are that I know of. What is he running from? Someone just pulls up to your lot and you instantly reverse out of your driveway and floor it into a high speed chase on the highway. Like that was just a really crazy reaction to have. What were you guys driving? I was driving the Rogue. The Nissan Rogue. Okay, so it doesn't the Nissan Rogue. Not like a police vehicle. It's not like no blue lights weren't flashing. Plain clothes, nothing. Like we were just chilling in the Rogue, and we could have just been anybody, anybody. So it was just a very bizarre reaction. And the other thing that I thought was really bizarre was. So we chased him for probably like fifteen minutes on the highway, and he pulls off at the little tin exit, floors it left. And he pulls into a Home Depot parking lot. And that was kind of the other thing that I was like, this is weird. He doesn't know who we are again. And he's pulling into a public lot that has cameras and people around. So, like, he's thinking, you know, that we're somebody that might do something to him. It's the way I felt. Like, what are you running from that when you finally do stop, it's in a public place? He sounds almost paranoid. Yeah, no, totally, totally. He stops. Like, he knew we were just going to keep chasing him, and this was not a good situation, really, for for anybody. Um, So we get out of the car. He stays in his van, and we walk over, and Art says, are you Mr. Forcier? And he said, no. (laughs) We obviously knew it was him from his videos online, and he had a guitar in the front seat, and his van has got a bunch of shit in the back. There's like a mattress, and it's just like piles of stuff. And Art just said, nice guitar, Mr. Forcier. And that's kind of when he knew that we knew that it was him. And he said, didn't I not call you people back? And we were like, I don't, I don't know. Because again, the producer called and we assumed we didn't hear back. We didn't have an interview with him. He said, didn't I not call you people back? And we were like, I don't know. Did you not call us back? And he said, when you don't get a phone call, that's me. And he was talking in like really bizarre speech patterns and like double negatives. When you don't get a phone call, that's me. It was like, what are you, what? Art then said, okay, Mr. Forcier, we want to talk to you about Maura Murray. And he just said, I'm not, I have nothing to say. I'm not, I have nothing to say. And we said, you don't want to talk to us. We just have a few questions. He said, I'm not, I have nothing to say. Did this occur around the anniversary? No, I don't think it did. Um, I think it was, it was after this was like later into our filming, I think. 
were there cameras around when uh, when he first saw you guys? And then were there cameras around in the parking lot when you guys? No, because we floored it away from the production crew. Like we were out of like walkie talkie signal, like everything. Like we were just going. So we lost all the vans of cameras. So it was just us and the GoPro. So when he first saw you, were there? I mean, I'm just trying to get at was there any indication that he knew that he was talking to people from the TV show? No, no. I think I think he knew that there were I think because Audra had called and said, like, you know, hey, we'd like to talk to you. Um, we're working on this documentary about Maura Murray. I think he knew there were people in the area. Um, but we were just sitting there in the rogue and the van with all the cameras was way behind us. So it wasn't really that obvious i guess what is obvious is that he lives in a vacant lot out of his van and it's a road that there's normally not cars parked in front of so to see two cars like parked by his property he's definitely not a stupid person right you know like you know he he knew when art and i are pulling like slowly pulling up to his driveway to just get out and be like hey can we talk to you he was expecting the documentary crew to uh to show up at where he lived at some point it seems like and he could tell that you guys I, were waiting yeah which probably freaked him out he could tell i don't know if he knew we were the documentary crew or who but i mean why are you getting into a high-speed car chase to run from a documentary crew also yeah and to paint the picture that um that it's not like he lives down a road it's like he lives on a turnaround off of a road uh, there's not like a lot of reason for anybody else to be in that area. Unless you're shoveling his driveway, which Lance did. Unless you're being a courteous neighbor and taking care of some snow removal. That for was him. really neighborly. He left town at the anniver- around the anniversary. I just wanted to make sure that he had a clear path when he returned. Right. Well, that was the thing. We were actually trying to invite him to the, the vigil at the VFW in 2017, and he... Uh, Seemed to have left town because... He had, uh, had other engagements. Yeah, and it was snowing a lot that weekend, and Lance shoveled his uh, driveway. We were there. I thought I'd just do a, you know, a, a humane thing. And the reason that Rick Forcier's quote-unquote sighting, we don't know if it's true, is important is because it does put her right at that corner who lives on that corner, guys. A little bit down Hummingbird Lane, you have our hero, uh, Greg Floyd. Of course, you're being sarcastic, calling him our hero. Right, that is... Got a dark sense of humor there, Lance. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Yeah, Greg came up in our episode uh, showdown in Franconia because he was directly involved in the showdown between Leeko Kenny and Officer... Bruce McKay. Bruce McKay, where he became directly involved in this incident and ended up shooting and killing Leo Kenny. Right. And anybody out there listening was like, I'm sure there are people who are very familiar with this. I hope people are out there saying like, they're, they keep talking about Greg Floyd and Rick Forcier and Claude Moulton. Yeah. This is why. This is why. Yeah. Keep, keep listening. Keep talking about them. Make them household names. So just looking at his record real quick, simple assaults arrested on June 4th, 2011, arrested in New Hampshire. Also in New Hampshire, arrested in 1997, uh, not specific. There's also a conviction from a drug charge in Georgia. So I don't know, j- just to paint the picture of who this guy is, if you didn't know the Leco Kenny, Greg Floyd, Bruce McKay uh, triangle of fate that we always talk about here. Um, so that ju- 
just in case Rick's account or his sighting was true, that's where it puts Mora, near his house. And from what we're looking at here, it's likely that Greg Floyd has at least six arrests on his record from simple assault to uh, criminal traffic uh, felonies. So this is someone with a bit of a track record. And there's also that, you know, the local t- the local talk about him having pulled a gun on a utility meter reader. Remember? Yeah. Remember that from, I think it was from the Boston Magazine article, there was some anecdote about him trying, like, threatening to shoot someone that was coming, um, yeah, the utility meter reader. Next up, of course, is uh, the guy who was staying in the A-frame house at the time. Now, this is just a little bit up the road, the opposite way from where we know, from how we believe Mora to have been driving that night. So this would have been west of the accident. And then you got to take a little left up Valley Road and you will run into the A-frame house, which is currently for sale, side note. But Claude Moulton lived at this house at the time of Mora's disappearance. Of course, we've been over uh, this guy um, several times on this podcast, most in-depth being episode 67 called Inside the A-Frame with the old owners of the A-Frame house. And we know that there was blood samples found in the downstairs closet of the A-Frame house in which Claude lived in. He had uh, some interesting allegations against him as well, some really dark ones, I would say. And there was this blood in the house, and there was this cadaver dog search that was done in 2005 that hit on that downstairs closet. And then you add the blood found from the Oxygen Disappearance of Maura Murray TV show, two persons' blood, two different people's blood found in that closet downstairs. One female, we're not not sure about the other one. Haven't gotten a full profile that we know of to date. Right. This is something that, you know, is just sort of like a a thorn in the... our side when it comes to uh, the frustration and not having any access to official information. I mean, that's all that like what you can say is what is what it is. It's cadaver dogs that that we know go nuts in this house. Cadaver dogs do not go nuts over dead raccoons. You know, they go nuts over dead human. And then you have what's probably built blood stains that the luminol lit up. And then we have two sets of actual blood stains. Yes, for sure. Confirmed samples of human blood. Yeah. Right. From the wall of the downstairs closet. From the wall of the downstairs closet. So you have these contributing factors. And again, well, let's take Claude out of the, the equation. You, you should have a connective tissue there to investigate something there because of cadaver dogs and blood stains. And the reason why we're even talking about him is because his brother came forward to Fred with a rusty knife and said that he believed that his brother could be involved. And I'm being careful because I'm not going to say what his motivations were behind doing that. It could be because he was actually suspicious of his brother. He was trying to make his brother look bad. It could have been vindictive. We don't know why he did it, but we know that he did it, that Mm -hmm. he did go to Fred and say that. Right. And we know that he did leave the A-frame shortly after. Sure. And uh, the, the rusty knife, if you're wondering and hadn't heard, uh, was sent to New Hampshire State Police by Fred Murray. They have apparently tested it, uh, so they say, but we did not hear any results. You can only imagine it doesn't have more as uh, blood on it, if it has any blood at all. Okay, so you got the brother doing that thing with the knife. 
and it has to do with Moore Murray. And you have other talk out there about how his brother and him had a falling out over a car that they were supposedly borrowing from each other, and he was going to return it. And there was something about, you know, if you don't do this, I'll tell everybody what happened to Moore Murray. How does her name keep coming up between these two brothers? Uh, it's a, a question that probably can just sit out there in the ether. Mm-hmm. I'm right. Like, yeah, how, absolutely. If you have nothing to do with the disappearance of Moore Murray and you live in that area in the proximity, it seems like right now the first two people we covered, three people we've covered, including the brothers and Rick Forcier, all decide that this is a good thing to joke about. All decide that this is now our 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 you know pinpoint joke when we want to threaten somebody in our family or we want to just you know have a dark sense of humor it's funny that it comes back over a decade later she keeps coming back to mora um okay now from the a-frame house there is a little bit of connective tissue to this other property that would be just west of where mora disappeared just west of the westmans and down a little bit of a road uh, getting closer to the Wild Amanusik uh, River. Now, the connection is Claude's girlfriend at the time, Mora, went missing. Uh, her name was Skye. She has a sister who lived at this property right down the street. Her name is Erica. Erica was involved with one of the men living at that house. Now, these are names that Mr. Murray gets, gets hit with. These names come up a lot. So, Erica actually testified against this guy, Greg Boutelier. So where Gary was residing at the time was within that vicinity that we're talking about, this, you know, maybe 500-yard vicinity of uh, Moore's disappearance. Now, so we're, the, we're bringing up, just to be clear, we're bringing up Gary Boutelier because he lived in a property that was very close in the vicinity of Moore's disappearance. Now, he was one of the men who was accused of sexually assaulting David Aldridge's daughter. This is something we're not making up. This is part of a disturbing and disgusting court document where she accounts of her father, David Aldridge, her uncles, Virgil and Alan Aldridge, of molesting her when she was a child. She also includes her mother's boyfriend's father, Gary Boutelier, of sexually assaulting her, and a family friend, Michael Gadois, of sexually assaulting her. This is all within that area where Moore disappeared. And in this document, this document describes um, repeated assaults from when the victim was in between ages 10 and 17. Graphic dis- yeah. depictions of, of what happened, and she was discounted by her her mother saying she made it up and there's a lot of back and forth. But the bottom line is David Aldridge stood trial between September 10th and 16th, 2014. After the state rested, the court dismissed all three incest indictments and all but two of the aggravated sexual assault indictments. Those two indictments alleged that he had his daughter perform fellatio on him between July 98 and July 99 and he committed an act of digital penetration between July of 2000 and May of 2001. The jury convicted him on each charge and sentenced him to 10 to 20 years on the first charge and seven and a half to 15 years consecutive on the other charge. We talk about people that are local because when you're looking at this crime, you think about someone that would be that would feel safe and comfortable picking up a young lady in plain sight of houses. And I think someone that would feel comfortable doing that is someone that lives there and someone that travels those roads on a regular basis. I mean, that's not definitely 
the profile of who did it, but I think that it, it makes sense and it fits. And it's also not definitely a crime that we know of. Right. We are uh, at this point kind of following, I think, the police's lead and kind of acting like it is. Yeah, working under the assumption that this was foul play, which has been asserted by law enforcement as their most dominant theory. And I feel like the three of us feel personally is the most likely scenario. Um, then that's probably the kind of person that would do that. The rabbit hole of this case is that when you look at one element, it leads to so many other elements that are just as or more so uh, disturbing than the what you were looking at in the first place, right? Also, speaking of the Aldriches, there is the account, and we're not really sure where this came from yet, but there is an account that Mora was seen in a car with Dave and Alan Aldrich. Again, those things that are out there in the ether that we can't really put a, our, our you know, a pin in and say this is exactly where it came from. But what we're getting at is it's it's the, the next rock that you overturn. And I'm turning over the David Aldridge rock. Why? Because it was Gary Boutelier, which came from the brush burning, which brought us to David Aldridge, which brought us to the child molestation charges, which brought us to an account of Mora possibly being seen in a vehicle with him. It. This is. These are things that we we're we. I wish that we could have a moment where we turn something over and we say that's just that. And you could just rule it out. Rule it out. It would be Let, great. Yeah, rule that out. That guy or that woman. They're a decent person. And uh, something else that's that's really interesting. We'll leave you with here today. Um, and trust us, there are some more uh, local dirt bags that so much so that we could probably do an episode two, like we're we're specifically not mentioning a few. Um, but just want to leave you with something that we got emailed and sort of a thought that's been hanging around for a little while. And it was a really good thought. It was the fact that, that Morris phone, as far as we know, never got back into service. So she either shut her phone off when she left the area and never turned it back on if she left willingly, or she just never left that area, or at least her phone never did. At least did. her phone never left that area. And if it did, it had been shut off. Right. So to work backwards from that, the reason why we're saying that is the Londonderry ping. So we know her phone was turned on at one point at one during point. her trip to check a voicemail and it pinged. The, someone called her phone from Londonderry, New Hampshire. And then she shut her phone back off until uh, the spin out at the old weathered barn corner. And then she tried, she turned it back on, but she wasn't in service. Therefore, the phone couldn't ping off of any cell phone towers telling anyone where she was. But we do know that the cell phone would have pinged had it been on by Beaver Pond based on Witness A's account of calling, uh, routinely calling to, um, to, to make sure that the people she was calling knew where she was en route from her work. To There's home. service yeah. there. To this yeah, that, day, that's where you go to, to, get, to service. get service again when you're traveling down Route 112. Right, right. So to caps, capsulize that thought, you can't track Mora's body, but you are able to track the whereabouts of her phone. And if, you, if it was not pinging off of anything, that means it was either off or it was not moving. So if it was not moving, was it on her person or was it left behind? And right now we don't know where the phone is. It well, has never been found. Well, it wasn't in her car. We we know that. So so thank you to the emailer for that because it's those little little nuggets, those little details that really you, you think it's minutia, but it's not. I mean, it's, there's a, there has to be a logical explanation for everything in this case. Yeah.
It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And now, gambling terms. Snake eyes. Rolling ones with a pair of dice. Double down. Doubling the original bet for one more card. Bad beat. When your strong hand gets beat. Illegal gambling can put you at risk. Protect our communities. Play legit and gamble only where it's legal. Learn more now at playlegitco.com. A message from the Colorado Division of Gaming. Gambling problem? Call or text 1-800-GAMBLER. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.